This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time uh, and those people that chose time over money they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, Um, But it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love. Right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, If all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other. Whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this? Or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And Because and, remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it. And in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives. And for for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's so careful of your excuses because... Nobody buys them anyway, except you. And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simple. It's a time management book. Is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. 
All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday. We're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example... Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate and came out where the people are. And you were out there with – you were out there and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a, in a conversation. I know it was like a real conversation. It was It was like the first time I think in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I Are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like I'm just wondering, are you sick? Um was there did you need a ride? It's terminal. <laughs> so but... were you were you ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally you don't talk to the girls. Well I, I was looking for ride, but they all said no, so I thought I'd just yeah. Keep talking to let me them. Just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) You're a baby. Um, Like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. 
In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer. Are you kidding? A rocker and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the, you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream maker. I mean, how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art form, man. Like, I know what would happen, though, is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream, and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe, and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom! You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> mental note don't sell the robots that's the coach's corner folks fairly basic stuff eh we'll be right back welcome back friends to the matt townsend show we've heard much on the subject of money and politics uh, remember uh, the last State of the Union, President Obama himself has spoken on the, the topic. Um, it's no secret that there is a rising problem of big money's role in our nation's political system. In fact, according to a New York Times CBS poll completed last summer, 84% of Americans, irrespective of party, believe that the money has too much influence on political campaigns. While plenty are aware of the threat, the power of big money has um, on the country's democracy Little is being said about the actual solutions for how you fix it. Everyone will say we've got to do something about it. It's a great, I guess, position. But uh, in the end, what are the solutions? What are the real answers? And in fact, some people probably wouldn't say that there is a problem with too much money. Uh, joining us now is Stephen Spaulding, legal director and senior policy counsel, uh, counselor at Common Cause, where he works to reduce the undue influence of money in politics and expand access to democracy, uh, by the way, trying to do it with the highest ethical standards in government. Wouldn't that be a great thing? He joins us now to talk to us more about uh, the financial impact on our democracy. Stephen Spaulding, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Talk to us about this. This, I mean, we hear about it all the time, but then when I when I get into some of the articles and read more about What's going on? This is this is crazy money. This is these are crazy numbers that are impacting these presidential elections. Billion dollars to run for president. Not only to run for president, but you can think about all of the money that is also infecting um, our elections at every level of government. So, yes, the presidency and that race takes up 
a lot of the oxygen in the room, and that's because, of course, the president is an, as, as incredible power and a lot of influence, and that's where that's where people are really paying attention. But while people are attention, paying attention to all of that money, which is indeed a problem, um, you also have money going into the hands of senators and members of Congress and governors and state legislators, and a lot of that money is coming from a very unrepresentative segment of the American population. It's not, it's not a lot of people that can afford to write um, four or five-figure checks to candidates. And I think it's common sense that a lot of people expect um, something in return when they make that kind of a contribution to a candidate. And our concern is that really undermines the, the very basic principles of our democracy, which is that everyone's voice is supposed to be heard Everyone is supposed to have equal influence and come to the political table um, as an equal citizen. But when you throw money into the mix, it really, it really gets things out of balance, and we then have a, a government that is more responsive to the desires of, of um, the donor class, which, as I said, is not very representative of America as a whole. Right, and then you have uh, Bernie Sanders, who is, is getting donations – from, you know, just the average Joe, millions of people, I guess, donating. All he has to do is make an announcement, and um, he doesn't even have to open up a pack. He just can make an announcement, and individual contributions of $27 roll in. Is that more what you're thinking should be the standard? Well, let me let me say this. Um, we, we support policies and solutions that have been working um, at the state level, and that would be um, small donor public financing systems that really empower the voices of average, um, ordinary Americans. So hmm. small donors um, are able to contribute to candidates and have those contributions matched with a limited amount of public funds. You know, that's how every president of the United States ran for president from Jimmy Carter all the way up through uh, President George W. Bush. Every single one of those presidents, indeed every single uh, nominee of both the Republican and the Democratic Party, ran on public financing. So what happened is you would, you would collect um, a number of small-dollar donors, and those dollars would, as I said, be matched, and then candidates can get back to debating ideas talking to their constituents and voters, and not just talking to deep-pocketed pocketed special interests. When, right. when Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, this is a, a fascinating statistic, when Ronald Reagan uh, ran for re-election back in 1984, take a wild guess at how many fundraisers uh, he attended. Hmm. Uh, in 84, so this is post-Carter, or, or pre, uh, post-Carter, um, yeah. I would say... Ten. He attended three. Oh, my heavens. Three fundraisers, and they were actually all on behalf of the Republican National Committee. In 2012, President Obama, in that year alone, attended 223. Oh, my so heavens. We've seen a complete title, title change in how we fund our presidential elections. So what, what I do want to get back to and what I think we've seen the success in Maine and in Connecticut, where average ordinary people are able to run for the state house, Republicans and Democrats, they're able to collect small dollar don- donations, small donations from their friends and neighbors. They can then get a small match 
uh, that lets them run a competitive campaign, and then they're able to get back to discussing issues. That's how 80-plus percent of Maine's legislature has been elected, hmm. um, similar numbers in Connecticut. Um, we're seeing that model begin to shift. In the city of Chicago, voters um, just last year voted on a non-binding ballot resolution saying that's how we want our city council members and our mayors to run. In New York City, that's how it works. In Los Angeles, that's how that works. So I think that kind of system is going to bubble up and eventually we'll see real reform. It's. I'm assuming um, these are the same companies and, and power sources and power people that are donating uh, behind the scenes are the same ones that are the lobbyists running a lot of the legislative agenda. Absolutely, the money is 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 uh, when I, when I talk about the donor class, what I'm talking about are yes, wealthy wealthy interests, but um, the, they they are able to channel their funds not just uh, to political campaigns, but it is also the lobbying. When you have um, companies and industries spending millions of dollars a day lobbying members of conference, Congress, that, that, that also really sets our system out of balance because then what you have are you have the staff members who are, who are very overworked and understaffed on Capitol Hill reaching out to lobbyists right. to really quickly learn an issue, and, um, and, that, and that really can skew political outcomes, we think. So we also absolutely need to look at closing the revolving door, making sure that lobbying is open and transparent. But, you know, it's no surprise that a lot of the issues that move through Capitol Hill, right now not a lot is moving, but the issues <laughs> that tend to move like butter are those that, um, that benefit um, the the donor class in this country. Well, and when a lobbyist is is helping Senate staffers, they're really, in many ways, from other guests we've talked to, they're basically writing the legislation and handing it to the staffers, and and, and they become the support staff for the staffers. That's that's right. And now there 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 are issues there, of course. One of the reasons is actually because we, our, our members of, of Congress have the, the, their own budget has been cut, so they're not right. able to hire um, kind of non non ideologically driven uh, uh, staff members who can provide advice that that is they don't have they don't necessarily have the resources themselves yeah. to vet all these issues. And to be clear, Common Cause is a lobbying organization. There are a lot of public interest lobbyists too. But the resources of private interest, um, gra- you know, greatly outweigh that hmm. of those of private interest, and that's why, you know, we work every day to make sure that citizens can get their voices in. They can call their members of Congress. They can meet with them back at home. They can they can send letters and and really and, and make it clear that um, they too need to be need to be listened to. Is um, then there was a court case. It seems like that that maybe tipped this uh, tipped this. I guess too far, uh, you know, out of the the realm of possibly having a more kind of small donor public finance world. Where was it? Was it Citizens United? Is that where this really started getting sideways? Well, Citizens United um, really, really took our system and um, empowered again corporations and other special interests to spend unlimited amounts. Basically, what the decision said was that a corporation. Um, a nonprofit or for-profit could spend an unlimited amount of money from their general treasury funds supporting or uh, trying to defeat candidates. So that unleashed hundreds of millions of dollars into our elections, much of it in secret, because the court assumed in that decision that at least the money that would be spent would be disclosed. 
so that shareholders could decide whether the companies to, of which they are part owners of are spending money wisely so that voters would know if elected officials are, you know, quote, in the pocket of so-called moneyed interests, end quote. That's what the court said. And um, unfortunately, we don't have that system of disclosure set up. So the court was a bit naive there, mm. and we have not acted uh, to update our disclosure laws. There was a bill called the Disclose Act that passed the House in 2010. It was filibustered in the Senate. It actually had uh, supermajority support. It had 59% of the Senate voted for it. But um, because of the way that the rules have been rigged in the Senate, it actually takes 60 votes uh, if, if anyone demands it. And so that bill failed, and we still are dealing with the consequences. Of course, there's lots of other actors that could pass common sense rules to disclose some of this some of this new money. But I do want to be clear that there's nothing in Citizens United that prohibits um, these kind of small donor public financing systems mm. that I'm referring yeah. to. In fact, those have been routinely upheld, as have disclosure laws. So we know that there are plenty of solutions that we can still work on, although we do need to eventually address Citizens United directly. Well, and even just a few years ago, um, it seemed like this is almost a game of you know, um, cat and mouse where – one candidate might say, I'm, I'm going to go for public funding, but another candidate's not going to accept public funding and then can just fundraise as much as they want. And then all of a sudden you're kind of forced if you're going dollar for dollar and you want to have an impact to just not accept public funds. Well, that that's a challenge, although what I'll say is when you talk to candidates, and again, Republicans and Democrats that have participated in the system, yes, it can be um, a little daunting dollar for dollar at this point, but um, it's it's not as daunting voter for voter because voters are going to know, you know, is this candidate supporting my interests or is this right. candidate supporting the donor's interests? And many times, donors that don't even live in that district. I mean, you have to ask yourself, um, why would a um, someone who lives in New York City or Los Angeles fund a Senate race in Nebraska or in your home state of Utah? Right, right. Um, they don't get to vote in that election. They don't have a they don't have a right to vote for that candidate. So what are they expecting in return mm. for that kind of um, money, money that can um, outweigh and um, really, really uh, flood flood a district in which they don't even live? And it's probably because they want something in return in the yeah, form of absolutely. And, and you see this in today's election. You hear uh, everybody's pushing against uh, Hillary Clinton because of her Wall Street connections. And so is she being bought off by Wall Street and Trump's self-funding? So he obviously has our best interest at heart. And so they're, they're all they're all talking about it to some degree. Um, let's do this, Stephen. Let's take a break. Come back. I want you to talk to us about your um, your your kind of your resolution, your your solution of uh, that's discussed in that article, fighting big money, empowering people. You've put together a plan, uh, a goal, and a process for how we can um, how we can push this and and get back to where the people have access, uh, greater access even than just, or at least the same access than just the wealthy, the um, those that have money, the resources, the businesses. Stick with us, folks. Interesting, interesting insight into maybe some of the complexity you see going on and chaos and almost irrational you know, maneuvers going on in our political system. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, uh, hoping to help you see the world better. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today on the phone with us is Stephen Spalding, legal director and senior uh, policy uh, leader at Common Cause, where he works to reduce the undue influence of money in politics, expand access to democracy, and uphold ethical standards in government. Uh, Stephen, welcome back to the show. Huge issue. I really, I, I believe it. I can see the data. And you, you're not fighting the fight alone. There are other organizations. I guess you're, you're a member. You're the Common Cause is a member of a group of uh, a collective of thirteen other groups. And you've put together some solutions. What, what are some of the things we can do? Well, that's right. You know, we did work with a number of organizations, and we are working to kind of insert this into the. Uh, elections at, at every level, which, which, as you mentioned, is called our Fighting Big Money and Empowering People 21st Century Democracy Agenda. And there's really five principles in this document, uh, which we think every candidate should embrace. One, we need a democracy where everyone participates, where everyone's voice is heard, where everyone knows who is trying to influence our views and our representatives. We really need a democracy where everyone plays by fair and common sense rules and finally, where everyone is held accountable. And I'll quickly kind of go through the yeah, policies that will further these. So one, where everyone participates, that is the small donor public financing system that I described earlier, which has been working with great success at the municipal level in New York City and in Maine, where actually a very strong majority of voters went to the polls and uh, voted in an initiative to update and modernize that system back in November. And that kind of a system, again, lets legislators spend less time fundraising from their deep-pocketed donors and more time talking to their neighbors and constituents. There are bills in Congress that would set that up for Congress, too. One is the Government by the People Act. Another is the Empowering Citizens Act and the Fair Elections Now Act in the Senate. So on the other policies, you know, where we want everyone's voice to be heard and not just the very wealthy, we need to ensure that we have strong contribution limits in place so that, um, you know, in some states, for example, in Oregon and in Virginia, Anybody, including corporations, can give any amount of money to a candidate. We think that system kind of really sets up a system that is on the borderline of authorizing almost legalized bribery in a yeah. way, yeah, yeah. even though we have those laws in place. So we need a system with strong contribution limits so that everybody's voice is heard. Finally, as I was – not finally, but third, as I was saying, where we need everybody to, to know who is trying to influence our views, we need to pass just common-sense transparency laws so that you as a voter – can follow the money and see who is spending what to influence our campaign. Since 2010, it's been over $500 million uh, that has been spent, has come from secret sources. So there are bills in Congress like the Disclose Act that would fill in the gaps after Citizens United. States like Massachusetts and Rhode Island have passed new laws modeled off of that. But there are other places where we can where we can ensure that there's more sunlight in political spending. And that's For a no-brainer, right? Yeah, well, Just... it should be. Yeah. I mean, eight out of the nine justices upheld it. Ninety percent of Americans understand this. But there are powerful interests in this country that would like to continue to spend money in secret. And they fought hard <laughs> to block these kinds of laws. So while Congress might be bottled up right now in gridlock, we do think the Federal Election Commission, you know, has independent authority to update their laws. The Securities and Exchange Commission that over sees our public, uh, public, public companies could require public companies to disclose any political spending to shareholders. The, right. the Federal Communications Commission, which, which oversees our you know, airwaves, our broadcast airwaves, could require, could require disclosure. The President of the United States could sign an executive order requiring government contractors to disclose any spending that they might give to third-party secret money groups and spending money. So we need more disclosure. Well, and everybody um, cries about it, yet nobody's moving. 
Well, that's right. Um, that's right, and that's why we that's why we are inserting the solution. Good. We've heard a lot about problems. We need we need more um, solutions. We need to change the way that the Supreme Court thinks about um, money in politics. It's basically said the only guiding principle that allows campaign finance laws is is to curb corruption. And while that is an important interest. I think there's another interest in this country, which is kind of political equality, as I was saying, where it's one person, one vote, not one dollar, one vote. And so we need to ensure that, you know, maybe leveling the playing field is something that the court could look at again as a possible principle to uphold these laws so that everybody has equal voice. And then finally, mm-hmm. what we really need are our agencies to do their job. The Federal Election Commission has been mired in partisan gridlock and hasn't really been able to to move things um, and hold hold violators accountable. So we really might need to look at really restructuring the Federal Election Commission. So that's the plan. We're asking candidates to support this plan. Common Cause is a nonpartisan organization. We don't endorse candidates, but we do put these ideas out there, and we hope that candidates will take them and run with them because they've had real success at the state and local level and in past, uh, past years at the federal level, too. Well, it seems as uh, we listen, we hear Trump's support uh, from people that feel like their voices aren't being heard. We hear it uh, maybe as part of a major part of Bernie Sanders' success. Um, people aren't being heard. They, they don't have their they don't have their voice being listened to. So it also, I guess, some of that is maybe they're just the Congress, Senate, presidents, or they're they're deaf uh, in a way, and and maybe some of that is just they're being impeded by the money. Well, absolutely, and we really need to we really need to now be shifting the conversation to talk about the solutions that empower voices and bring more balance in. I mean, I do think it's interesting that it's been a theme. I think um, it's two sides of of a coin here between Sanders, who's raising money from small dollar donors and Donald Trump who's saying, you know, he he isn't raising money from special interests, but but I, I think if you took that to a to an extreme, um, people need money to run for office in this country. Right. And I think if we only had self-funded billionaires running for office, um, <laughs> you have to ask yourself whether the public interest is represented there because right. it's not necessarily anyone's fault for getting into politics that they themselves, you know, don't don't have billions of dollars in their bank account. We need to come up with a system that allows people to run for office, which is what our democracy is, is based on, not just those who happen to be happen to be wealthy. So that's why these solutions it, we can't just say, you know, get out get, getting money out of politics is getting big money out of politics is a worthy goal. It certainly, you know, fits on a bumper sticker. But what we really need to do are we money is going to be in the system. Yeah. So we need to figure out where that money is coming from and where that money is um where that money is going is didn't the supreme court somewhere um basically agree or position that um it's free speech giving money to a candidate is freedom of speech so you can't limit their freedom well so there was a decision that started a lot of this Buckley v. Vallejo, a decision that was decided actually 40 years ago uh, this year, which which tried to make that parallel, which tried to equate giving money to political candidates with speech. Um, we think that that's not free speech. We think that that is paid speech, <laughs> right. and that there can be common sense uh, rules here. Of course, there's a connection between spending money and and speech. It takes money to put up a billboard, right? It takes money to to print campaign literature, but but that's not the same thing necessarily as saying money is speech. Money is is property. 
It's not necessarily words coming out of coming out of anyone's mouth. So that really is one of the original kind of sins here that we have to deal with, which is ultimately money is is going to have a role in the system, but it depends on where it's coming from. No, no amendment is you know per se. Um, absolute, and even when there may be First Amendment interests here, no one no one assumes that you can crowd, you know, scream fire in a crowded theater, that you can defame people, you know, in right. the newspaper. Those are all places where we found um, some sort of a balance, and where where it's just common sense to people that spending an unlimited amount of money out of your bank account is not the same thing as talking to your neighbors or in the town square about about politics. Right. And, and I love the fact that you bring it up that this is this is the presidential election, but it's also on every level yeah. of, of 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 government nationwide. And and, and like you're you're giving us examples of Connecticut and Maine and um, I think even New York. Why why are it seems like so many of these more liberal kind of minded states? Well, you know, it's interesting because those systems um, this is a bipartisan problem, and it has bipartisan solutions with, with Americans across the country of Republicans and Democrats alike that support these. Um, Maine system was set up by a ballot initiative. So hmm. when, when politicians weren't going to move it, voters did it themselves. That's great. Um, and so, um, you know, there was a very strong system actually in Arizona, a public financing system that had provisions that were um, ultimately um, after Citizens United need to be fixed. But, but there has been success um, in red states too. Arizona, I don't want to forget Arizona. It's just that the system right now, there was a provision of that law, um, a technical issue with that law after, after another decision called McComish, which requires Arizona to go back and update their law. But it has been successful there, too. And at the presidential level, as I said, um, Ronald Reagan, yeah. um, President George Bush, President George Bush II, they all ran on it. And it was George W. Bush who signed McCain-Feingold, and it was Senator John McCain, um, the Republican standard bearer in 2008. This was one of his signature achievements, mm. was, was a campaign finance law. So this is a very recent phenomenon that um, money in politics is seen by some as a partisan issue. McCain-Feingold was signed, again, by President George W. Bush, a bill that was bipartisan, that was John McCain's bill. This has a long history of Republican uh, support, and eventually I think people are going to pay attention to where voters are, and certainly it's a big part of the presidential race right now. And um, I think if people just start... If, if politicians really start paying attention, they'll know that it's in their self-interest to, to back strong campaign finance and money and politics laws that raise up the voices of average ordinary Americans, too. And, and, and it has 85 percent support, That's according right. to the CBS you know, right. poll. Um, just as we wrap up, and it, maybe that's the answer, is I need to go push a local ballot initiative um, uh, for some type of finance reform. What, what does the average citizen do? What should I do? What should our listeners do to, to do our part to push this concept just as a voter? Well, first of all, um, folks can find out more about the Fighting Big Money agenda at our website at commoncause.org. And you can, you can look those you – can, you can sign up for our alerts, which we send out all the time, asking people to contact their member of Congress or their state uh, senator or state house rep and ask them to co-sponsor these bills. But, you know, really, really, this is, this is about a grassroots movement. So it's, 
It's writing letters to the editor about the problem of money in politics. It's bird-dogging members, um, you know, people that are in elected office. Sometimes they love seeing their name in the paper, and sometimes they don't like seeing <laughs> right. their name in the paper. But they pay attention. So really it's about being a citizen lobbyist and, and finding, finding those uh, elected officials in your hometown and asking them what they're doing and actually presenting them with solutions and saying, you know, here's a, here is, you know, a place where this is working. We want you to work on it. But it really, it's really about holding um, power accountable, um, arming yourself with the solutions, and then talking to them about how important it is, but also talking to your friends and neighbors and building, building a real movement to, to get this over the top, as we've done many times before. Oh, love it. I mean, really, and, and be active. Be involved. Know what your candidates well, – know their position on this and the actions they are taking. Stephen Spaulding, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate that. Great insight for all of us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. Commoncause.org, that's the organization. Go check out their website and, and read uh, read more about what they're trying to do with fighting big money, empowering people. Folks, it's ours. It's This is our country. This is our voice that needs to be heard. And uh, I'm not sure that pushing a lot of money into anything has ever really made it better let alone our democracy, right? Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back, uh, helping you lead a healthier life and hopefully a happier democracy, a healthier democracy as well. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, money, uh, it's the root. Well, I guess the love of money is the root of evil, right? It's uh, its even true in our Bad Boys segment today. Because at some point, if you don't have enough money, whether it's in government or just, you know, taking care of the cat, you're going to do something stupid. Authorities say a Pittsburgh woman jailed in four recent store robberies told police she needed the money for dog food and kitty litter. Police say 28-year-old Melissa Santoro netted less than $300 in the heist. Police say the clerk at a gas station robbed last month again and again last week was uh, recognized Santoro when she came in to buy cigarettes. Police say she denied robbing the station. She also denied robbing a Pittsburgh Rite Aid last month and a pizza restaurant a few days later. But police say after taking a lie detector test, Santoro confessed to all four robberies. She told them a gun she carried was plastic and she needed the money for dog food and kitty litter. And cigarettes. And pizza. And a plastic gun. You got to pay for these things. Oh, it's hard, folks, when you don't have the money. And uh, if it's true, if this was for dog food and kitty litter, what about the dogs and cats out there? You know, they're all there's a ton of YouTubing cats and I bet they're not getting any money. All the money goes to their master. So uh, money matters and uh, it might matter a lot more in our political system than any of us know. A half a billion dollars spent in our political system. I, I misspoke. I thought it was a half a trillion dollars, a half a billion dollars spent in our political party all unaccounted for. Nobody knows where that half a billion went. We don't know. Wouldn't it just be common sense to know where it went? 
Is it that big of a deal to just track it? And why aren't why isn't this already happening? Maybe we're not making enough noise about it, folks. So let's let's pick up our game, start making some noise. Let's go get educated on it. Let's take our country back so we don't have to you know, lose our democracy and then see all the chaos that we're seeing. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner – You learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills because – Technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills, you're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it, model it, model it. 
the more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other, and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of we believe that we should have respect of each other, and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um we're we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there, right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would, he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone. And then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. 
Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother, and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connection. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years, you won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon, and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it, for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. What if our best intended efforts to protect our children's health were found to be the primary cause of some of the chronic illnesses that are on the rise? That's exactly what medical evidence now shows. One in 13 children now suffers from food allergies. In the last eight years, the number of children diagnosed with ADHD has jumped nearly 50%, and one in 45 children now carry an autism diagnosis. Many parents have been told that their children have these conditions for life, and they're just simply untreatable, uh, except our next guest um, may have an inside track, uh, some ideas that might help us uh, in some of these areas, and at least hopefully improve our health, our 
our homes and uh, maybe just the well-being of our families. Dr. Maya Sheetreet-Klein joins us now uh, this morning to talk a little bit more about this topic. Uh, Dr. Uh, Sheetreet-Klein, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What a fun book. I mean, it's such an interesting idea. It seems like, you know, farmers forever have been out there getting dirty, in the dirt, breathing the fresh air, and eating healthy food. Why wouldn't we go back to that style? Well, I think part of it is like we've really just moved away from a, a lifestyle that's outdoors. So we've now become, you know, pretty screen addicted, I think, as a society, um, and we've become pretty interested in keeping things clean and sterile as much as possible and, um, and doing that for our kids. So we're missing out on a lot of the microbes and time outdoors and kind of the fresh, unprocessed food that used to be much more available. Now, and this is such an interesting, interesting thing, your background, you're a pediatric neurologist and a mother of three, and a lot of your... your uh, your your feeling around this, your energy around this started with the, a focus on your own children. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for many for many doctors, especially, we have these epiphanies because our children end up acting as our teachers yeah. and um, or family members or ourselves sometimes. But um, for me, I really had a, an experience with my own son, my youngest, when he was about a year old, started to have breathing breathing difficulties. It was, you know, sort of like asthma a lot. And it really went on and on and on and on. It didn't just happen occasionally, but Mm. it was pretty much continuous. And he had weird rashes. He stopped gaining new speech. So he had been a really early talker. Wow. And then kind of plateaued. And, you know, as a a pediatric neurologist, obviously, and for any parent, I mean, it was terrifying. And, and nobody seemed particularly concerned. Our pediatrician, who was a very loving person and a, and a you know, old-time, really invested pediatrician, you know, gave him antibiotics and steroids and then inhalers, you know, and we were <laughs> kind of doing all these things. And it seemed like the medication was actually making him worse. Ooh. And uh, finally, I was like, this can't continue in this way, but nobody really seemed interested in coming up with the root cause you know it was just like let's try to use this band-aid or that band-aid and finally i found an allergist who was willing to test him for food allergies and it turned out he was allergic to soy oh wow i had been giving him soy milk when he was a year old you know actually i was still breastfeeding him but he was also getting soy milk when i was at work and, uh, like as a healthier you know, option, probably. I thought it, well, he yeah. was a little. He got gassy with with milk, and well, I thought, who well, doesn't? you know, this is healthy. Yeah. And it turned out that what he was getting every single day was actually making him incredibly sick. Not just affecting his gut, but also his lungs, and also his his development and his brain. Wow! And, and you're you're paying attention to that because there's a cause and effect to a lot of our foods and, and our lifestyle. But it's not always like an immediate cause and an immediate effect. It's not always like they go into, you know, some shock and drop and have and lose their ability to speak. It just might take years. Well, exactly. And, there, you know, we think of the only kind of reaction you can have to food or, you know, any kind of allergy has to be like anaphylaxis. Right, that, grab an EpiPen. You know, you're, you're keeling over, as you say, and, you know, your throat closes up, the hives. That's a very classic reaction. But from a 
you know, from a neurological perspective and even from an allergist perspective, there's actually something called delayed hypersensitivity. And that hypersensitivity is something that can take um, hours or even days. In my son's case, when he had, once we took him off of soy, his breathing symptoms completely went away hmm. and didn't come back unless he had an exposure. And it turned out soy is a hidden food in a lot of different processed foods and restaurant foods. So we, we really learned a lot. That was sort of the beginning of my education. But in his case, it would be about 48 hours. So 24 hours later, he'd start to have a runny nose. And 48 hours later, the breathing issues would begin. Isn't that amazing? And that's such a delay. You might think it had something to do with that day. Oh, well, we were around a dog today. Exactly. Exactly. And then we just but keep I mean, eating or drinking soy. What I try to tell soy. people is that, is that every, every symptom has a reason. Things don't just happen for no reason. We don't, we're not always able to be good enough detectives to discover the reason, but it's always happening because of something. And, you know, it's important to really kind of be thinking and be critical of, you know, what's going on um, when you have a child who's having, you know, illnesses, because sometimes you can really make connections and change the course of their illness. When you say the dirt cure, um, what does that have to do with, because uh, to me, that that philosophy of becoming your own, like, detective, that's a really great idea. But the dirt cure, too, I guess, is that there's, we also might be overprotecting our kids by keeping them away from germs. Well, what I mean when I say the dirt cure is three things. I mean exposure to germs and microbes. I mean eating fresh, unprocessed food from healthy soil and getting children outdoors in nature. So for me, those are the three foundational ways that we can reverse the course of what's happening in children's health right now and really all of our health is related to our, our body's need for those three elements that are all related to dirt that we're really not getting. And would also, I think, really prevent a lot of the need for all the pharmaceuticals people are getting um, and, and uh, even, it, you know, being out in nature actually even helps with mood and cognition. I see so many children who are anxious who are depressed, who are, um, have ADD or ADHD diagnoses, who have executive functioning issue. Being outdoors in nature, there's actually many studies that I talk about in The Dirt Cure, which show that all of those things can improve just by being outside so in nature. Talk about some of the, the, the chronic illnesses. Um, like I, we, we know exercise produces certain chemicals that, that, are, that can, be, can act like antidepressants and um, talk about how not being outdoors and not having the exposure to nature impacts us. Well, so, you know, we know that there's a lot related to screen time, right? And we know that that keeps us probably a lot more indoors and certainly kids more indoors, right? I mean, I don't know about you when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. My mom basically, like, I was 10 years old. She kicked me out of the house <laughs> right. in the morning, let's say in the summer. I would hop on my bike, bike around to my friends. We'd go you know, play tag or we'd go play by this creek near our house. I mean, kids are not doing that in the same way, particularly because so many of us live in urban areas. But, you know, even in suburban areas, it's much more, kids are much more indoors. And the kinds of things it seems to do, I mean, for one thing, there's a really interesting body of scientific literature that shows that 
being outdoors and being exposed to natural light prevents near, developing nearsightedness. <laughs> really? So something from one to three hours a day is what they recommend to prevent nearsightedness. We used to think it was totally genetic. Yeah. But actually, and probably there's a component, of course, that is genetic, sure. just like with every condition. But there's also another element. We need to be interacting with our terrain, with our environment, and that light they found out completely by accident in these studies is what actually helps prevent this epidemic of nearsightedness. In Korea right now, almost 97% of young men are nearsighted. Are you kidding me? That is that, And it's, they're all probably on devices, right, sitting in a house? Well, and they're indoors, yeah. So actually they've created a public health program, an initiative, getting people outdoors to try, getting kids outdoors to prevent, you know, all those hours indoors they're spending also in school. Mm-hmm. They get them outside. Well, and I'm going to tell you, being nearsighted in a war, that's not going to help everybody. <laughs> that's a big problem when all of yeah. your young men are nearsighted. This is, um, it's, it's crazy. Like, it, but again, it it seems like the system, it's not just immediate cause always and immediate effect. We're always so into the immediate learning. Um, th- this process takes so much time that it's almost like we've been lulled to sleep. Well, absolutely. Things happen in this kind of very gradual, um, insidious way where suddenly we're we're seeing so many health issues and they kind of creep up on you. And then, you know, I talk about this in the book. Like, I have so many patients who come and say, oh, my child's healthy, my child's normal. But it turns out, you know, they go to, they, they poop like once a week. And, yeah. you know, they have, they have seasonal allergies, so they're taking something for that. They have eczema, so they're on steroid cream. They, you know, there's like a long list of different medications that they're taking. And it's sort of like it entered in such an insidious way. They don't think, oh, my child's on five different medications. Mm-hmm. But but here we learn that, you know, there's such a fascinating study as well about being outdoors, how it impacts us. So soil itself is filled with amazing microbes that we interact with when we're outdoors. And so um, one teaspoon of soil has as many microbes as all the people on Earth. Wow. And it's wow. unbelievable, right? Yeah. And one of those kinds of organisms, I mean, think of how many we still have yet to learn about. One of them, um, called Mycobacterium vacai, actually has been studied, and it's been shown that it boosts serotonin levels similar to um, SSRI antidepressants like Prozac or Zoloft. Oh, my heaven. So the kid eating the dirt is really probably self-medicating. <laughs> Well, maybe <laughs> out not in the garden levels, absolutely, because yeah. they're also adding microbes into their gut. Absolutely. You know, but yeah, and, and actually another study that looked at that same organism found that um, in animal studies that, that mice were able to complete a maze in half the time and with less anxiety, a difficult maze, than the mice who didn't get exposed to that. So there's this thinking that it actually boosts cognition and, and helps us feel more relaxed, which makes sense. Oh, Totally. Well, and then if you're if you add on top of it that you're outdoors um, with the sun beaming down on you, giving you some vitamin D, you're getting fresh air, your body is moving. Mm-hmm. I mean, you add all of that, and you're not having the negative effects of being indoors with with that type of lighting and a screen in front of your face. Boom. Right, and there's more actually because there's very interesting data that shows that. When we are around trees, 
the more trees there are, the healthier we are. And when trees are actually cut down, more people die. That's population studies. Oh, my heavens. So we're very, very, we're in a very deep connection with the natural world, whether we, whether we know it or not, whether we want to be or not. And when we aren't honoring that connection and nurturing that connection, it actually leads to illness. We, we actually are sicker. Yeah, and, and, and then we just call this the new normal. We just think this is normal. This is who we are. We just have eczema. We have ADHD. We have, and I, and I better take some medicine for it. Well, and that's what's offered. You know, it's fascinating because, I mean, doctors, this is a whole body of scientific literature, and I referenced it throughout the book so that actually anyone, whether it be an educator, whether it be a parent or a grandparent, whether it be a physician, anyone can look and see the sciences right there. And, and yet we're not really taking steps to change to change what we're doing. You know, I right. mean, wouldn't you think that knowing this information, we would, we would actually want to make the day different for, let's say, school? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, let's get outside a little bit more. Let's, let's take our class outside to do an activity. Well, and even having, I think, you know, having a nature curriculum mm-hmm. um, is something I really strongly believe in. I mean, take kids out into the woods. In Japan, there's something called forest bathing. It's a it's, a, it's called Shinrin-yoku, and it actually uh, means immersing yourself in the forest, and it's used as preventive medicine there, where they've actually studied and found that being in the forest makes people more focused. They actually perform better in the classroom or in work, and they're happier, they sleep better, and they actually have higher levels of anti-cancer proteins in their bodies. So it actually completely transforms their immune system just by walking in the forest. Holy cow. Yeah, we got. Oh, this is good. Maya, we got to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Maya Sheetreat Klein. She's the author of the book, uh, The Dirt Cure and Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from Soil. She's a a pediatric neurologist, for heaven's sakes. And she's teaching us we got to get back to Mother Nature, man. Forget a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Maybe just a spoonful of dirt and you won't even need the medicine. How about that? We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, continue this discussion about your health and uh, nature. Isn't it amazing? God provided the answer. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the law of the harvest, you reap what you sow. Maybe there's more to it than just a, some philosophy or great wisdom. Maybe uh, the law of the harvest is also you need to get out. You need to get outdoors and uh, participate in a harvest of some sort. Eat fresher foods and uh, use use really what, what God gave us to be able to live healthier Happier lives, the soil, the the earth, nature. Expose yourself. Uh, our guest says we need to we need to get back to the dirt cure. Expose ourselves to germs. Uh, get you know, eat fresh food, and get out and closer to nature. 
there's there's a lot of uh, incredible research talking about the benefits of all of that and how it may be able to uh, be the antidote, maybe, or just the the necessary, you know, input to create a healthier life. Dr. Amaya Shetreet Klein is joining us. She's the author of The Dirt Cure, Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from the Soil. She's a pediatric uh, neurologist and mother of three. And uh, she has been basically on a, I guess, on a mission, trying to do what she can to improve the health of all of us and have us look at our health, I think, in a, in a more holistic way. Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What do you think? I mean, is, is it possible that if, that if we just, you know, move away a little bit from the technology, it's so interesting to me that many times technology and nature – uh, they they kind of seem they seem like antithetical. They seem you don't want your phone near the dirt, near the water, you know. You, you so we almost need to walk away, or you can bring it, I guess, take pictures. And but in the end, you, you're just saying get back and allow nature to do what nature does. Well, I think there's nothing there's nothing that can replace just walking in the woods or walking next to the beach with nothing and just taking in what's there listening to the sounds and you know just letting it really is you know it regulates your nervous system but it's also very spiritual i mean i think it's working on us in a physical and emotional and a spiritual way all the time um but i also think it's possible to bring technology and use it to connect yourself to the natural world so some examples of how my family does that is, for one thing, pictures, right? I mean, that's, I think, using a phone, using a camera, but going and finding things that are beautiful um, or things that really, you know, make us feel, uh, you know, turned on for some reason or another. So that's one way. Another way is actually um, using, there are some great apps. So one of them is actually called Merlin, and it's, Uh, an ornithology program it actually helps identify birds Hmm. so if you hear a bird or spot a bird and you want to know what bird that is you can actually go into this um this app and it'll say how big is the bird you know what time of year is it what does it look like and then you can actually hear the, the the bird's song and it will tell you you know the top three birds it could be which is yeah fun you know well imagine having that as a kid when you were a kid going out on your journeys near the river the stuff Mm -hmm. you could look up and find right exactly and then there's another thing that my kids really love um to do with my husband which is um geocaching yeah we do that a lot out here you know it's like a big digital universal explain it explain it (laughs) because there's some people don't do this Uh, we have a lot of children and and families that go out geocaching yeah, so I don't, I mean, you may be able to say more than I do, but really it's just like finding, you know, if we're walking along somewhere and we're checking for different um, different little areas of treasure and right. then, you know, oh, my gosh, it must be over here. They go, they find it. It's hidden in some little place in the woods or park or wherever, and um, there'll be a little trinket inside, and then you leave a note or a little trinket when you take the one that's there, and it's just kind of a little fun 
it's a little fun treasure hunt. I it mean, is. it's just a way of kind of connecting. You're connecting with nature. You're connecting with other people. And, and it's kind of fun because it's technology at the same time. So it is a way to kind of create adventure outside and um, get kids excited about it. And again, it's fairly simple. If it, all you got to do is go look up geocaching um, online, and you'll get a variety of sites and sources that can get you on an adventure in your area. Basically, is do you see? Because it really is. It's food, and um, but it's it's kind of allowing yourself to to get out psychologically, emotionally, physically, get active. We talk about we need to get our kids more active. And um, but as a, as a physician, you see kind of the immune the the immunology of this the the power that all of this can have on our immune systems. Do you think we're we've been too uptight about keeping our kids clean, so clean that they don't get any benefit from germs and bacteria? And I think we've really uh, we you know. Many, many years ago, <laughs> there was Louis Pasteur and the germ theory, which offered a lot, right? He yeah. said there are invisible to us microbes, um, germs, that can kind of attack, enter our bodies, attack us, and potentially kill us. And that was good. It brought up hand washing as something very important, which actually has saved lots of lives, and the right. idea of isolating or quarantining when someone's sick, and that's important. But on the other side of it, as we often do, we really swung the pendulum way in that direction, and we lost the idea that there could be more available to us or benefit to us, as there often is from anything from these same germs or microbes. And it turns out that, and I always say germs or microbes, but really germs are kind of like a pejorative term for for microbes, and microbes mean bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and all of those things now are kind of coming up in the science as being beneficial from, obviously we all have heard, or most of us have heard about probiotics, where we actually on purpose take bacteria in pills yeah. <laughs> and swallow them. I mean, if you would have talked to people about doing that 30 years ago, they would have, you know, thought you were an absolute lunatic. So that's one example, but even more than that, there are, um, there are scientific studies looking at giving parasite eggs to people with autoimmune diseases, and it's actually very helpful for things like allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, even neurologic illnesses that's being looked at. Hmm. Um, very interesting. Viruses, also a lot of benefit. Viruses, it turns out, take over for bacteria in our digestive tract um, when we are on antibiotics to help prevent any damage from happening. Isn't that it, Viruses end up protecting your body when and, and in antibiotics fact, are on board. Help you. Um, there's also some studies on, let's say, mumps. People who have had mumps in childhood have half the risk of developing ovarian cancer later in life. Hmm. And yet we, we, yeah, we're so fearful of the initial threat, not seeing this, the systemic complexity that we might be benefiting from. Wow. It's looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Exactly. This this is just about holistic, right? It's just seeing more of the whole picture and seeing and allowing nature to kind of do what nature should do. Well, I think that's really the big point is that the answers are available to us 
if we look at what's already here. We don't have to keep coming up necessarily with more and more kind of synthetic or technological things. It's not to say there can't be benefit there, but we are kind of a, whatever we do ends up often being a poor imitation of what we could actually be benefiting from if we were actually connecting and honoring you know, the natural resources that we actually have. Yeah, we make a pharmaceutical that may actually cause other problems even, while, and yet there's a natural way we can find another way to do it. Well, for example, we're hearing so much about antibiotic resistance, but it turns out that the newest antibiotics are being developed from soil microbes, and there's not a problem of resistance when you use these so- this soil microbe. This is probably something coming up the pike very soon. Mm. Similarly, essential oils are, are now being touted and being investigated, again, for antibiotic-resistant um, MRSA. You know, everyone's very nervous about this uh, MRSA. Yeah, right. And there's actually benefits from essential oils because plants are very complex. Soil is very complex. Humans cannot approximate that level of complexity, but our bodies respond to it. In fact, a BYU researcher is using other viruses, 14 or so viruses, that uh, are already on our bodies to actually combat MRSA. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. they all combine, they'll combat MRSA if, if we could just get out of the way. It's oh, amazing. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's a. I think it's a. It's a powerful idea, and I, maybe it's one of those things where you need a pediatric neurologist and a mother, and somebody who loves nature to to have this convergence to to teach us the rest of this stuff. What else can we do? It's just a mom, a dad, you know, that that are listening out there, a grandparent. Um, what What's your final recommendation? We have a, about one minute left. What Where should we start? Get the book, go to the dirt, uh, go to dirtcure.com. Then what? Well, I think reading labels of food and making sure that, you know, you're eating as much unprocessed food as possible. And that I go into quite a bit in the book um, because we need to nourish kids so that their bodies have the tools. Children are great at healing themselves. All of us are really, but we have to have the tools to do it. And that really comes almost entirely from the things that we talked about, and food is one of those things. So whole, fresh, unprocessed food, as unprocessed as possible. And, um, you know, also not being afraid if your kid gets a fever occasionally. It's actually important for the body. Don't interfere. As long as you see, you know, if it's a brand-new baby or the child looks incredibly toxic, you know, for sure you need to get them checked out right away. But beyond that, you know, you let the kid have their fever, you support them, you give them soup, you keep them comfortable and let their body actually have that experience because the immune system and the body's always learning and yeah. it's important. Yeah. And, and yeah. And be there. You can be there. It's not like neglect. Pay yeah, attention. Exactly. I mean that's what it is. We're all so neurotic like, yeah, but I don't want them to but the suffering it's just like everything else. Let him stress. Let let it, a little stress can help. Yes, exactly. A little stress on the system. Well, we appreciate your work, uh, Dr. Maya Sheetreat Klein and the book The Dirt Cure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great job. Keep up the great work. Uh, go uh, look up dirtcure.com. Wonderful resource. And go look at the pictures on the site. That's what you can do with a camera in nature is actually get out in nature. Um, don't just be thinking about how you can get the picture up on Facebook. 
but go notice what you're noticing and spend some time out there. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Remember, helping you uh, live longer, one of the goals of the show, and apparently a little dirt every day will help. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting when you just start uh, hearing the latest research um, about nature? I I find it so amazing that we have this incredible earth, and yet we we place all of our faith in a presidential leader, for example, or in a major manufacturer of a phone— or even in the medical profession. But instead, and then we all just overlook the earth. And a spoonful of dirt has healing uh, bacteria, microorganisms that are like, you know, one of the better SSRIs, one of the better antidepressants. In the dirt. And people that are in the dirt regularly, working in the dirt regularly, have benefits from that. We don't, we, I mean, think of how many people have been diagnosed with ADHD. It's going up by leaps and bounds. Jumped nearly 50% diagnosis of ADHD. And yet we have more and more technology, more and more benefits people are more, having more money there's less crime one in 45 children now carry an autism diagnosis one in 13 children now suffer from food allergies it, mother nature it's there listen to this though a guy's going to blow up this whole hour with one story a london man with a plan His goal was to hit all of London's 46 McDonald's locations in 24 hours and chronicle his journey for YouTube. He starts off with a bang, getting in a solid seven breakfasts, chowing down breakfast burritos, pancakes, McMuffins, anything else that his heart desired. At about a dozen visits, he admits to finally uh, feeling full and celebrates by going for a Happy Meal to honor his inner child. As the night gets on, he hops on a rentable bicycle, goes through the drive-thru on two wheels, much to the chagrin of the customer in the car behind him. Ben, quit eating. Quit eating, bud. Chew with your mouth closed. Sorry. Bud. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. No big deal. But anyway, by the end of the day, it's spent $130 on his McMarathon, he's calling it. But he's smiling as he eats his 46th order. He says, I've learned all about parts of London I didn't know about, foods I didn't know about, and areas of my body that I didn't know I could feel pain. Interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I teach a I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit. That everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm, you're rocking your baby to sleep, and you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings. Or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires, direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. 
if you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. You remember the Dust Bowl? You know, in the Midwest. Um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean... A problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember. And and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word or two or actually three, uh, hope. And he he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. 
But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope, right? The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke and it was an underground line outside and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the, you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words, steward, agent, options, right? Pathways and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West, we'll make it through the drought. Let's Let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we got a great uh, topic coming up right now. You know, and it actually, the timing couldn't have been better. Today, the um, unemployment uh, numbers came out for January. Apparently, unemployment falls to 4.9%. It's the lowest in eight years. Um, It's below 5%, the first time since 2008. And so you think, hey... Good. Fewer people are unemployed, except here's the deal. Um, The future, you know, we live in the information age, right? And uh, we know that we have more and more artificial intelligence. 
being used in products and services. We also know that uh, more robots are being used in manufacturing. So what does the future of job of the job market look like you know is the economy going to continue to be able to produce jobs for people our guest today ray williams um is is uh, suggesting that you know what we we might be looking at the end of work in an article he wrote in psychologytoday.com uh, by the same title the end of work the rise and fall of the job um ray talks about what uh, some of the scientists are saying about the future of jobs. And we've we've asked him to join us today to kind of walk us through some of his thinking and find out if there's anything we we should be doing, paying attention to, maybe some things our children might want to be focused on when it comes to the future of employment. Ray Williams, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Now, now you are the president of Ray Williams Associates, which is a firm based in Vancouver, where you you go and work with executives, you coach them and and teach them, um, I guess about about people and about work. What is where where are you getting the idea that the future of work is in jeopardy? Well, uh, a couple sources, uh, and it's really kind of coming from a number of areas. Uh, one of them is the, the universities and research institutions uh, are starting to produce a lot of research that shows us that um, typical jobs that were done by humans are slowly disappearing. And I'm going to use an example. Uh, the University of Manchester Automation Lab now has a robot that does their, uh, does their research for them about fighting to, to invent disease-fighting drugs. Mm. It's just come up with one that identifies <clears throat> a, a component that they're going to use to combat malaria. There was no human that was involved in doing that. This was a robot, an artificial intelligence program that conducted this. Um, We're developing machines that can actually repair other machines. They have a machine that can build an entire brick wall for a house or a dividing wall that requires no humans whatsoever. So what we're seeing is... a revolution in the application of robotics, nanotechnology, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, biotechnology that's occurring at a a dizzying pace that most people are just not aware of. Holy cow. I mean, and and, and I guess everyone would say, well, yeah, but Ray, somebody has to run that machine. Well, sure, but if one person runs the machine and it displaces 10 then you're losing nine jobs. Exactly. And and the numbers may even be worse than that because oh. eventually we're we're going to be able to get a machine that can tend the other machines. <laughs> yeah. So the ser- the service, you can now have a service robot that services the other robots. Mm. Um and and we're you know, we're just beginning to see the the beginnings of that that most people are probably aware of. So, you know, replacement of checkout people in, in stores by the... the yeah, last night I bought my... I, I had to check myself out. And exactly. it's it's a it's an interesting... and you, But again, I always thought of it as, well, yeah, but that would be in warehouses and manufacturing, you know, kind no. of more blue-collar jobs. But you're now saying no. I mean, the white-collar jobs are in just as much jeopardy. As a matter of fact, more so uh, in many ways, and, and it, it's kind of insidious and we wouldn't think of that. So a good example would be there are going to be a large numbers of jobs in medicine 
and health professions that will be replaced by artificial intelligence. And you, you loved, uh, I'm sure, Star Trek, the old Star Trek thing. Yeah, yeah. James Kirk. And and the doctor had this little handheld device that he go and it would buzz as mm-hmm. he kind of scanned it over somebody. They're they're in the process of developing an MRI scanner that you can hold in your hand. Man. So <laughs> so we're seeing advances. Same thing in law. We, you talked about algorithms. Eventually, they're going to be able to commit so much information to algorithms for patterns where you can then apply it to a particular profession. So areas of medicine and law and finance, including the you know, stock market, are will be replaced by artificial intelligence processes and require fewer and fewer humans. Well, this is depressing, Ray. It is. It's almost like someday they just there there will be no more need for humans. Well, the, the thing is, it's going to raise a you know number of uh, interesting issues, which I tried to identify in my uh, in my article. One of them is we're going to move to increasingly a temporary and contingent workforce, where more and more people won't have an actual permanent job, but will be uh, what and it's called the gig economy, G-I-G, mm-hmm. where you have a you have a gig and you finish that job and you go on to another gig, and you market yourself. You market yourself out there to get uh, a series of gigs, and that becomes your employment. Um, so that that economy is growing hugely. Uh, and you know, a good example would be the people who are involved in, in Uber. Yeah, and and businesses like that. So those kind of businesses are proliferating. Well, and, and I a, see I see it too online with like YouTube and video. That I mean, yeah. you're only as good as your last video release, and you're only as good as. Uh, you know, your ability to go do the next – it's almost like a musician. You know, they, they're only living gig by gig and not not the technology gig. Um, right. And, but it's, and it's interesting. So that gig economy is going to start to spread into all kinds of jobs. Hmm. And, and more and more people um, who are the owners of companies and the corporations are going to say, why do we actually need to have full-time employees? Yeah. Which will then create a, another problem. The people in the gig economy, you don't have a guaranteed pension. You don't have guaranteed you know, uh, medical coverage. So that's going to create those issues that have to somehow be resolved too. Yeah, and another, uh, another thing – in fact, let's actually take a break and come back and talk about it, Ray. Yeah. But you also brought up education. So how do you oh, educate yeah. people to prepare themselves for the gig economy? Right. Interesting. Let's take a break. More with Ray Williams uh, on his Psychology Today article about the end of work, the rise and fall of the job. Folks, the future is a changing, and um, you might want to at least be preparing yourself for more of this gig economy. In a way, too, it might be a great, you know, for the baby boomers that are going to retire, maybe they can retire in the gig economy working you know here working there a little um interesting stuff we'll take a break folks stick with us this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You better work hard for that money. You might be losing your job soon. Uh, interesting 
guest. We're speaking with Ray Williams. He is the president of Ray Williams Associates, Associate, which is a firm based in Vancouver, and it provides executive coaching. And uh, he's an author. He's written many uh, books. He also um, has a, a blog called Wired for Success um, um, and on psychology today and wrote a really interesting article that we've been discussing about jobs and the workforce and the future workforce. And folks, it looks like a lot of our jobs could very easily just be not el- yeah, eliminated, basically. You know, technology is going to replace them. Will your brick wall that you – that grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-grandpa, those walls they've been building for years, now they're going to be build, built by a robot 0482. He'll take care of it. So what are you going to do? Well, let's ask Ray Williams – what does the future look like? And, and these changes in this advancing technology in so many different fields, so many different ways with artificial intelligence, with robotics, we got we to get a plan, folks. So, Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure to talk about this. What do you think? What is the future then? Um, I mean, if the jobs are going to be basically automated, many of them, um, What's going to happen? I guess what's going to happen with people is at some point the people are going to have to keep innovating and creating new, new things, new jobs, new techniques, new robotics, new AI. Right, um, and you know I've talked to some scientific experts uh, about this. You know they're also called futurists too, and and it raises kind of three basic questions here to to kind of uh, you know respond to what you're asking here. Number one is, will there ever be enough jobs for everybody in the future? So we, even though we see unemployment reducing, uh, you know, many of the new jobs that are being created are, are lower-level jobs. They're not they're right. not advanced, uh, complex jobs that guarantee you, uh, you know, lifetime employment, which is basically disappearing anyway. So uh, one thing is they're predicting is that there will never be enough jobs for everybody, and and uh, because of the robotic revolution, the uh, you know, artificial intelligence revolution, so what will people do? Um, so it raises this issue of uh, education. You know, what are we educating for if if you you can't educate for jobs that actually don't exist? Right. How how many how many computer programmers do you need when eventually you're going to have a computer program <laughs> that creates other computer programs? Right. Exactly. I mean, that, that's that. That's what we're doing, right? Every one of these new inventions is can eventually create or maintain itself, right? And and so the the number of people you, you're going to need in that complex scientific uh, area is not going to is not going to be huge. So you're looking at basically the service economy um, and personal kinds of work, the kind of interpersonal contact that mm-hmm. you know I may have with you, that may perhaps can't be done by a machine. That that would be a future possible job in in the health industry, in the personal services industry, that kind of stuff. And and I think too we may see a a, a kind of rejuvenation of of what it used to be like in the past, where creative jobs uh, that revolve around art and entertainment and music, et cetera, may be one of the growth areas hmm. because there again, that can't be done by machines. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, what kind of numbers are going to be? How are you going to finance that? Will it be paid as well? 
Those are all kind of iffy questions. So the whole issue of education becomes a real difficult one. Um, you know, if you're educating for the future uh, and you don't know what those jobs are in the future uh, and how many of them are going to be, it becomes difficult for, for what post-secondary education looks like. Oh, wow. And you can already see that education is suffering in a way at trying to even just just to educate the current kind of state of just just the information age, let alone what happens when we're in the robotic revolution. I mean, this is right. – it's tough. Yeah, I, I think so. And even even now, and I think this is – you know, maybe we, we're, we're getting a bit off track there. There's, there are a lot of politicians and, and uh, so-called experts saying, you know, what we should be doing is changing uh, university education that's strictly utilitarian. In other words, only for a, a specific job and skill. Right, um, but what if that which one job and skill is going to disappear? No, exactly. <clears throat> well, I mean, you think about how many degrees. You, I mean, you can go get a degree in accounting, and it seems like accounting is something that you can fairly easily automate. I mean, I don't know if you fairly easily can, but if you can automate certain medical procedures, and if you can automate with algorithms law, then you know certain fields that every university is you know pushing out their back door. Those are not going to exist. So I guess who leads this, Ray? I mean, this is where I guess you need true visionaries. You need leaders that can start to identify maybe the principles that people need to be able to live. Maybe what we need to train people on is flexibility and yeah, I think adaptability. You've the, yeah, you've hit the target there. And, and it goes back to almost saying, you know, the purpose of education is to produce uh, really um, educated citizens. And those educated citizens have the flexibility and adaptability to to perform well in any number of jobs. Yes, skills are important. Basic knowledge and you know math and science and and cognitive thinking and uh, problem solving those are all necessary. But it can't be all of that. And you know, quite frankly, to carry the kind of work I do, where executives run into trouble in organizations is not because of their technical skill; it's because of their interpersonal problems. Right. No, I, I totally see that. Relationship issues. Right. Uh, and, and yet we spend very little time on that, educating people about that. How, 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 do, you, how do you – I mean because I guess that's the key, huh? In the future, there will still be people and there will always be people. And it seems like hopefully it's, it's short of a Terminator experience that the people will be in charge. So it's really about people skills and – and under, I guess, and then, and then other, you know, resiliency skills. Right, resiliency skills, uh, uh, collaboration skills, um, uh, the the skills of building communities, uh, the skills of you know dealing with uh, um, uh, nature problems associated with the, you know climate issues that we're still mm-hmm. dealing with now. Creativity, are, yeah, yeah. A lot of those are social issues; they're not just technical ones. Right. So. It, Education is a big one. The last thing I was going to mention that um, is coming up by the experts, and, and that is if we assume that there's not going to be a lot of jobs for people, and a lot of people won't have work because of this uh, revolution in artificial intelligence, um, the, the, one of the proposals that's been floated is to provide a living wage for everybody. So, for example, in, in Finland, there. That's a proposal that's now uh, being considered seriously. Hmm. 
essentially you provide an income for every citizen in the country to ensure that nobody is in poverty. Um, and then some people will work and a lot of people won't. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that would be a big one, wouldn't it? Yeah. That, can you see that one? That, <laughs> can you, can you imagine the talk radio around that one, Ray? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's being seriously considered in a couple of countries now. No, I can. And you can totally see how that would happen. And then, but then what happens I just almost think of it emotionally, psychologically. What happens to a human that can't find work? Or, you know, what happens to a human whose natural abilities are maybe much more inclined to um, to, to the antisocial, non-creative job or experiences? I mean, you could end up ostracizing people that – and they would lose their identity. They'd lose this sense of – you know, this joie de vivre. Yes, exactly. And and uh, so that's one of the issues we have to, we'd have to wrestle with. The other one is, of course, the, you know, the really critical uh, perspective that people would have. Say, so, yeah, you can give money to people so they can sit around and smoke dope and, and not uh, not do anything for the rest of their life. Uh, uh, so, you know, that issue comes up as well. Mm. So, um, you know, what would we do with large numbers of people who can't work and yet we have an obligation to kind of sustain their well-being yeah. in some form? Otherwise, what will happen to them? Right. Well, I mean, I guess, too, um, it, whatever it is, it seems like it's going to end up – they're going to end up having to go back and help people. So maybe it's helping kids in school. Maybe it's volunteering in communities. What I mean, it, it just seems like – the, the future, it's it, it's not, it's not, um, it's so unknown. You're you're a leadership expert, and w- what do we do? Uh, you wrote the book Leadership Edge. W- what do we do with our leaders today? How could we? What should we be telling our kids? What should we be doing as organizational leaders to be able to look forward and and at least try to prepare for something we don't even fully understand. Right. Uh, great question. And, you know, where I've had dialogue with uh, the leaders I've worked with, uh, the issue comes up with, uh, well, what's what's my prime obligation? And so much of the prime obligation of leaders, of, particularly in the private sector organization, has been my prime obligation is to provide profit to shareholders of the company. Yeah. Uh, and and that's so that's what my prime obligation is. However, given the fact that we're facing things like, you know, permanent unemployment um, and the impact of automation, uh, as well as, you know, stagnant economies and, and everything goes along with that, uh, you begin to see that, you know what, there are other obligations of the leader, and that is um, how can I provide some value to sustain and support my community? What, what can this company do to make the world a better place? Hmm. I mean, that's, that's yeah, that's good. Um, and so I think that kind of dialogue with leaders is really important so that they don't see that they just have one single obligation, but they have actually multiple obligations. It makes you, it makes you think, um, boy, there, there might be more value in something like Facebook or LinkedIn or some of these kind of social networking sites than maybe we thought um, in the future of a job, and it's already it already exists this way. I mean, the easiest way to get a job today would be through people you know, somebody that knows of the job and and can get you hooked up. But 
man, in the future, that sounds like it might be even more important to be able to deliver the goods, but also know the people. Yes, exactly. So the the whole issue of social networks and and their 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 power to connect people, and we're beginning to see this even in politics now, mm-hmm. where where something is tweeted and it goes like wildfire through millions of people almost instantly. And that forms a public opinion, and that then people take action based upon that opinion. So that didn't exist 20 years ago. No. No, I mean, yeah, nowadays you can raise money, and you can almost probably raise money instantly simply because you can connect your network so fast on an issue. Yeah. Right, exactly. And drive it. There's one other thing too, Matt, I wanted to mention yeah, please. sort of you know, where we're heading here, and, and that is this whole issue of uh, who owns the robot. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the, you know, a company produces a robot that you buy to, you know, for example, clean the house or um, do something in the company. Uh, but particularly if you buy it as an individual, a person, do you own the robot now or does the company own it? Hmm. In other words, what happens if that robot's responsible for some kind of damage? that occurs to someone's property or to another person. Yeah, wait till you have a lawsuit because of a robot accidentally burning down your house. Right. So are you liable or is the company liable? So so the whole issue of who owns the assets, and there's no doubt that um, in the long term, whoever owns the assets of of, um, uh, all this automation, whether it's artificial intelligence or programs or robots, et cetera, they're the people who are going to have the power. Mm. So we're talking about power and of the of the whole automation revolution. Who's going to own all that, and what will they do with it? Wow, man, these are great okay. questions, uh, Ray. And as just as we kind of wrap it up, what what do you suggest the average Joe, non futurist, you know, just the average <laughs> worker with four kids or whatever? What should they be thinking? What should they be teaching their children to prepare for this future? Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually talked to my own kids about that too. And uh, a couple of things. One of them is, uh, is about education, is to, to, um, to stop thinking about education as preparation for a job. Yeah. But see it in a much broader context. Um, uh, secondly, is that within that education, uh, really don't avoid or um, think that it's not necessary or important to develop that whole area of what I call social and emotional intelligence because that's going to make you incredibly marketable out there. Yeah. Um, regardless of what your technical skills are. Um, and, and then thirdly is to, is to start developing, um, you know, your networking skills. Get to be part of communities. Um, get to be connected so that uh, you can find out what's going on in your local community, what's happening in your state, what's happening countrywide. Um, so you're in the know about what's occurring and and where it's necessary, where you have some interest, is, is to plug in and get involved. Um, and and I think that those kinds of skills and that kind of knowledge is going to be really really valuable in the future. I do too, and I. I mean, and and at least get you in the right circles with the right relationships to to be able to handle what's coming down the road. Ray, we appreciate mm-hmm. you and that your great work again, everybody. You can find Ray 
at um, if you just go to Psychology Today, you can look up his blog, Wired for Success. You can also go look for some of his books that he's written out there. Just Ray Williams. Um, if you type it in, you'll find him on Amazon. But Eye of the Storm is a great one, How Mindful Leaders Can Transform Chaotic Workplaces. The Leadership Edge is another one, and Breaking Bad Habits. Um, he's a prolific writer and has uh, got some great insight into the future and leadership. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Interesting stuff. Holy cow. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example, Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's it's hard. We we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate. And came out where the people are, and you were out there with you were out there, and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a in a conversation. I know it was like a real conversation. It was it was like the first time I think in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like I'm just wondering: Are you sick? Um. Was there? Did you need it's, a ride? It's a terminal. Were you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just yeah. keep talking to let them. Me just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he... You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars? Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart Bee is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> You're a baby. Um, like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer, are you kidding, a rocker, and three retractable canopies. 
plus the, the you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream makers – I mean how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art form, man. Like, I know. What would happen though is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom. You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> Mental note. Don't sell to robots. We're going to take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> 